everyone, welcome to the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. My name is Hitzir. I'm Isa. Uh, this week, uh, we are here to talk about some of the best TV shows of 2022 so far. We've already covered a ton of films. If you were to listen to our top 10 best films of 2022 so mm-hmm. far, uh, listen to our past uh, two episodes where, you know, our first two part on Behold here where we broke it down from number 10 to number 6. And then number five to number one. Oh yeah. Uh, but here we are talk- we are about to talk about not just the ten best shows of twenty twenty two, but we are about to highlight specifically um four best uh freshman shows, mm. uh, season ones to have debuted in twenty twenty two. So we'll be talking about We Own This City, mm-hmm. uh Pachinko, Minx, and Oma Vep. Those are our highlights for the best new shows of twenty twenty two. Uh, let's begin though with uh We Own This City on HBO. Mm. Um, the Wire creator David Simon uh, <laughs> revisits uh, Baltimore uh, to investigate police corruption in his latest show, uh, We Own the City. Um, in my opinion, I think David Simon is the greatest storyteller of all time on TV, mm. um, primarily because his TV show is the greatest TV show of all time, or some would argue um, the greatest uh, work of fiction in any medium of all time. That's The Wire, right? Yes. yes. You know, um, and, and his masterful shows have, I think, historically been underseen and undervalued. But his unblemished track record for creating some uncommonly insightful and sophisticated TV is quite undeniable. Mm-hmm. You know? um, he has a lot of roots in Baltimore. He, he spent two decades as a crime reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Yep. And then he spent um, like the next five years becoming a non-fiction author of books such as Homicide, A Year on a Killing Street, and The Corner, uh, A Year in the Life of an Inner City Neighborhood. And he has since, since parlayed that observational and journalistic skills into crafting a variety of extraordinary shows that sort of study uh, alienated communities and the failing institutions that shape these fringe social ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to work through about Simon for a while because, you know, he's so um, iconic you yeah. know, in uh, the, the TV medium or, uh, and has my greatest respect as, as a screenwriter. And he first actually gained, screen, uh, gained screenwriting experience uh, working on a series adapted from his first book. And the series is obviously NBC's Homicide Life on the Street, mm-hmm. um, which was a gritty cop show, you know, following Baltimore detectives that served as a prototype for his forthcoming urban masterpiece. He then later adapted his second book into a mini-series called The Corner, which chronicled the life of an impoverished family uh, amid the open-air drug markets of West Baltimore. Uh, of course, Simon is most well-known for his magnum opus, The Wire, the anti-cop show in his words, <laughs> um, the quote-unquote rebellion against all the horseshit police procedurals afflicting American television at the time, and still does, mm. uh, to be honest. And through five seasons, that novelistic series dissected the rot of America's faltering uh, institutions, you know, ranging from policing to labor to governance to the education system to the media. And most impressively, The Wire examined the macro through the micro, like the mundane and minutiae yeah. of its human characters, detailing the unvarnished lives of everything from cops to criminals to blue-collar workers to politicians to students to teachers to reporters in Baltimore. Exploring the ordinary people whose lives have been defined by 
the legislative policies and political forces beyond your beyond their control. Um, a lot of that plays into what we are about to talk about as well. Yeah. And this type of complex and challenging storytelling has found its way into the many shows Simon has created since, you know. Um, him and Ed Burns headed overseas for the Iraq War miniseries Generation Kill. Mm-hmm. And then him and Eric Overmeyer, uh, also from the Wire writing staff, went down to New Orleans for Tremaine, this um, deep dive into uh, the lives of jazz musicians, chefs, and more struggling to make their way in the city's post-Katrina years. And then he reteamed with his Baltimore Sun colleague, uh, William F. Zorzi, to make Show Me a Hero, um, starring Oscar Isaac, which is the first show I've ever noticed him in. Mm-hmm. A miniseries dramatizing the controversy over desegregated public housing in Yonkers. Yeah. Then him and George Pelicanos uh, created The Deuce, which is another great show, a drama about the rise of the porn industry in the 1970s New York. Mm-hmm. Most recently, though, Simon and Burns uh, returned for The Plot Against America, which was an alternate history drama, quite a stretch for um, David Simon, yeah. uh, that wondered what if xenophobic populist Charles Lindbergh had become president mm-hmm. and turned America to its fascism in the 1940s. So he may have built his career around Baltimore, but he has spent the last 13 years examining a wide range of sociopolitical topics outside of Baltimore, from Iraq to New York to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But with his latest project, We Own the City brings the acclaimed TV author back to a subject near and dear to his heart. And uh, he is clearly very knowledgeable about given the background <laughs> that I've just you know um, explained to you all. Yeah. Um, he's talking about here crime and corruption in Baltimore. This is created by Simon and his frequent collaborator, uh, George Pelicanos, who, as I've mentioned, was on The Wire, was on The Deuce, was on Generation Kill, was on uh, The Plot Against America, so they're frequent collaborators. And in an interesting interesting twist, this new miniseries is actually based on a nonfiction book by a different Baltimore Sun reporter called Justin Fenton. Um, mm-hmm. um, the, he, he came to the Baltimore Sun after David Simon, but clearly they have that, that chat background and... Justin Fenton clearly trusted Simon to adapt this story into um, a work that wouldn't be too um, Hollywoodized, shall we say. Um, And it is uh, set in the aftermath of the protests uh, over the killing of Freddie Gray, who died in uh, police custody due to spinal cord injuries. Um, A very famous uh, BOM case. uh, The the, the first instance of the BOM protest, not the second uh, George Floyd one. And the series centers on the inner workings of a real-life Baltimore Police Department. This is a real story that really happened, and the show depicted it accurately from from all accounts. It follows the BPD's Gun Trace Task Force, the GTTF, who robbed and extorted citizens for years before a federal investigation uncovered their crimes. The GTTF was headed up by Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, who is played by um, John Burnfall, uh, with swaggering bravado. Um, and the story of Jenkins and his dirty colleagues alongside the scandal surrounding them is a complex one, and it's told here in great detail. But I think where a more conventional drama might hold your hand by taking you through the rise and fall of the GTTF chronologically, like mm-hmm. The Shield, for example, on FX, Simon instead puts you in the shoes of the investigators and the prosecutors who are forced to piece the evidence and events together through run sheets, through interviews, through police logs, you know. Um, Bernthal's transformation from clean-shaven rookie to the bearded tyrant is the series' showiest portrayal, but we also follow many other compelling roles that help put 
um, unusually for Simon, a non-linear timeline together. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think about the structure of We Own the City? Uh, do you think Simon uh, pulled it off without it being too confusing or too convoluted? And what do you think about We Own the City overall, um, especially as a sort of quasi-sequel to The Wire? Oh, uh, let's talk about the timeline first, I guess. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, unusual and surprising from Simon. Uh, and I think like going into this and given that this is the first time he's kind of like messing with with uh, with the narrative in in a forward backward kind of motion. Sure. It took me a yeah. couple of episodes uh, yeah. just to get used to that and kind of orientate myself with everything that's going on. I think by mm. most accounts uh, there are it, there's enough um, kind of like clues for you for the audience to to make out where they are uh, in all of that like you know we don't yep. have like title screens necessarily for each particular era that they're in those are used very sparingly and only if we require the background right mm. so orientating wasn't as bad as i was worried it was going to be in the first episode it's like oh okay wait where am i what's going on yep uh, by the yep. second episode i think it's fairly clear i think especially uh kudos to burnthal especially who uh a lot of the time uh, underlines the scenes uh, when we do any sort of time jump uh, forward or mm. backward. Um, you know, what he wears, his uniform, the state of his facial yeah. hair yeah. <laughs> gives us a very good idea of, of kind of like where we're situated uh, within within the story arcs uh, in and of themselves. So I think uh, despite my initial worry and confusion, that clarified itself very, very quickly and I think largely it was yeah. very successful and it um, mm. The ability to juxtapose, uh, kind of like present day or uh, present day and past, uh, does allow for some very interesting juxtapositions with like the thematic understandings that uh that Simon's trying to explore, right? Like for mm. example, motivations or like uh things like um um the delusions of these officers, right? That kind of like jumping back and forth or uh, yep. where the kind of like origins of their their temptations come from, right? With what they're mm. saying in the present day as they are confronted with their crimes. Uh, really mm. adds a lot of weight to that. And then if you are filled in later on with the details of those things, like you kind of like have these like checklists of where all of those are. And it makes it very compelling in my opinion. Uh, yep. And it fills it out in a way that continues to provide tension uh, without necessarily like having us along for a linear kind of like narrative ride. Uh, so I did yes. enjoy that. Yeah. And uh, being that it's the first time Simon has done this uh, in one of his, his works, uh, mm. I, I'm, I'm hoping that he, you know, uh, in the future that he will consider doing it a bit more if it suits his needs, right? Because yeah. I enjoyed it in a very kind of different way. Like The Wire is, is still, right? His, his magnum opus it's the most phenomenal thing that we've gotten on TV ever and it makes me mm. wonder that if for some seasons maybe you know The Wire could have even reached for kind of like further heights of storytelling if he had chosen to do something like that uh, what he's done mm. with We Own This City um, so I'm curious uh, if that could have worked out but certainly for this series it worked very well Yes. Um, okay, so the second part is the show itself. How aware were you of the GTTF, the Gun Trace Task Force, in real life? Did you ever read any of the 
um, headlines or the Vice documentary about them and stuff like that. And if you were aware, um, how did you think the show translated uh, the real events to uh, narrative fiction? Mm. While, while it was going down, kind of, or while it was being reported in kind of real time, yeah. It was one of those things that kind of like graced my timeline on, you know, whatever mm. social media platform I was on at the time. Um, so I did kind of casually track that. It wasn't until I watched the Vice documentary that I kind of like took a bigger interest in that. Mm. Uh, but I do feel like the Vice documentary didn't necessarily provide as much context i think as we own the city did if that makes sense you know yes uh, the vice documentary was very uh focused on the actual prosecution of these people and giving you a context mm. to why they are being prosecuted and why it was such a landmark case uh but not necessarily mm. filling in kind of like you know uh the blanks as to uh why like so much of my understanding of the way Baltimore works comes from The Wire, right? Uh, right, and, yeah. And for, for to, to watch a Vice documentary without that kind of like, uh, that kind of like background would have been more challenging. Mm. But We Own City does it in such a way that it feels more complete and whole, right? Like clearly a wholly different function from the Vice documentary. Uh, but still, yes. it felt a more complete story and perhaps yes. a more, yeah. um, I don't know if humanizing is the right word uh, necessarily, but but it, it felt more whole and therefore a lot more nuanced um, than what um, Vice did, for sure. Yes, yes, yes. I, I agree with that. Uh, David Simon has spoken a lot about uh, how shocked he was about what happened with the Gun Trace Task Force because this wasn't the BPD that he left. Yeah. Um, the stuff that he chronicled in Homicide and The Wire and The Corner and stuff like that was kids' stuff compared to what the GTTF did. Oh, and yeah. he was shocked that the BPD had devolved so much. Like, I mean, this wasn't a guy that held, that held uh, the, BPP, the BPD in any esteem oh, no. at all. Absolutely not. Um, he knew about the practices, the procedures, the, the inefficiency of the bureaucracy and the system and all of that. He laid it out very clearly the issues was but yep. even david simon was shocked about what happened with the gtf and the gtf is just a symptom of a much larger problem and mm -hmm. he goes on to, to talk about it has been um 20 to 22 years since he last covered uh the policing in baltimore yeah. either as a non-fiction writer or as a journalist yeah. so his theory is that you know the people that came to power in baltimore police were the worst people that we saw in the wire you mm -hmm. know your hooks and stuff like that right <laughs> yeah. you know um they then perpetuated the culture these now we are two or three generations removed from the generation of police that simon covered mm -hmm. and these two or three generations learned from the worst of the worst and then you know then it becomes even worse, like, you know, the, the, the terrible officers who come to power teach even more terrible cadets who then come to power who teach even more terrible things. So it's a slippery slope and it's gone down so far to the point where the GTTF behaved like, you know, like the commissioner said, like 1930s gangsters, yeah. right? And to your point about the humanism of the show, um, Simon is always about people uh, at the end of the day. They're not cogs in a machine. He examines the, the macro through the micro, as mm -hmm. I said, you know. And this is a large ensemble show. There are so many characters here to help you piece together what happened. There is 
uh, Jamie Hector, who was Marlowe from The Wire, who plays against type, mm-hmm. to embody Sean Suter, who is a BPD homicide detective with a key perspective mm-hmm. on the relationship between the department and the city it's serving. Yeah. We have uh, Winnie Masako from Lovecraft Country, who plays Nicole Steele. Uh, who is an attorney in the DOJ, the Department of Justice uh, Civil Rights Division, investigating the culture of the VPD. Mm-hmm. So this is the most integ- integral character to me because but others in We Own the City are proxies into individual parts of the machinery. Yeah. Um, you know, um, some cops are building a racketeering case, some are securing a conviction, some are juicing arrest stats, uh, some are leeching the city- city's budget via fraudulent overtime hours. But Steele is the one who is tasked with looking at the department from a bird's eye view. Um, that view sharpens through her conversations with antagonistic cops, you know, like uh, BPD uh, officer Daniel Herschel, um, like uh, top Baltimore brass, uh, you know, former police commissioner Kevin Davis, alongside several local art- artists or authors or activists, uh, some, of who, some of whom play in themselves, by the way. Yeah. Um, so it is true, Nicole Steele, that We Own the City is at its most explicit or at, at its most expositiony, I guess, in identifying the cancerous elements of policing in America and Baltimore in general. Mm. You know, there is impunity for offenders with badges, endless battles over budget, putting restrictions on officers without also strengthening the rights of citizens, and a sort of warlike approach to public safety, the militarization of the police all become giant hurdles to institutional change. Yeah. And like all his shows, We Own the City, uh, their broader ideas are grounded by meticulous attention to geographical specificity mm. and authenticity. Um, Simon and his writers don't shy away from immersing you into regional slang or accents and shop talk and the monotony of police work yeah. and... The, um, the overlapping circles of various crimes, cops, and agencies, and most of all, a dizzying array of sporting characters, plot lines, and intermingling threats. Um, Simon almost approaches his cop shows like a fantasy author would approach a fictional fantasy land, you know? <laughs> like, it's almost like you're learning an entirely new lexicon, you know, the, the way that the police talk, the accents and stuff like that, yeah. right? So I, I really get engrossed in details such as that, and, 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 and Simon does it very well. Um, what about you? What were the elements of the show that either shocked you or impressed you? Oh man, um, I, I think just the, just just how casual, not maybe not casual, how natural it felt, right? For these characters, especially from kind of the onset, right? Like I, we follow um, Wayne Jenkins and he in his rookie days, or we have flashbacks to that. We don't see that much of it in particular, mm. you know, uh, to see that kind of uh, the the slow but sure uh, um, degenerate, his slow but sure kind of degeneration into what he is at the end of the series itself, right? Yep. Like, a, again, a phenomenal uh, performance by John Bernthal. Uh, but not yep. just him, but the ones around him as well. Like, it, it comes from these small compromises, right? They have the best of intentions, uh, sometimes, uh, but slowly mm. accumulate to the point whereby decisions are made um, that are shocking in 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 their entirety, but at the same time yeah. understandable, right? Like it's mm. very hard to judge them when you have mm. like the full context of their stories being presented to you mm. in such a way. 
right? Uh, because like, who who is to say that you in their shoes would not have done some, something similar? You know, uh, yep. that is not to not not to pardon or forgive what they have done or the victims of what they have done, um, mm. to make light of what the victims have gone through. Certainly, but still, like it is understandable, or at least the trajectory is clear enough, uh, and that kind of like detailing the minutiae yeah. of it, right? And the yep. attention to that detail is so impressive and so compelling. Right, I think that what sticks out to me the most, and it's not just with Wayne Jenkins, even though we spend a lot of screen time with him, right? It's everybody else, whether it's G Money, you know, whether it's uh, it's um, uh, Herschel, Herschel yeah. or Suter. Like at some mm. point in time, in the day to day grind of being a, a beat cop on the streets, right, and kind of seeing all the things that unfold and the circumstances post Freddie uh, Freddie Gray, um, mm-hmm. it it seems understandable. Right. Yep. Uh, it seems like yeah, you know, it slowly chips away at, at you and what you would believe you stand for. Um, mm. You know. So I I love the fact that that is you know uh, consistent throughout the entire series. I love the fact that you know the it it never lets up on that. Um, that was definitely one of those things. And I think um, the pacing for me for this series felt really good. Right. Like mm. there's no one point in time that I'm kind of like lost in you know uh there's so much detail there's so much minutia there's so much kind of leaning into the the regional regional specificity but i'm never lost in any of those like it doesn't confuse me it's not there for the sake of being there necessarily as much as it does add um you know a richness to the world that i'm being immersed in uh and that's a very tight uh balance to strike right in something that is this short um, in terms yep. of its runtime, so those two are the two aspects that pop out at me the most upon watching all of this. Yes, yeah, um, definitely. You know, um, extrapolating just how broken Baltimore's law enforcement system is yeah. in itself a naughty and challenging endeavor. But we own the city isn't simply interested in depicting the insidious facts. I think a lesser a uh, bio picture, we say, or whatever, would have just <laughs> yeah. focused on the facts, you know, a Wikipedia entry, shall we say. Yeah. But this is also focused on dramatizing, to your point, how the lack of systemic safeguards and accountability, the lack of repercussions, yeah. will inevitably tempt those in power to abuse it. Yeah. It shows you the seductiveness, the ease, and most of all, the entitlement that it engenders in the police officers. It yeah. is... Um, you know, it's and it's all depicted in the kind of typically unflashy, unstylized manner that Simon and company examine the moral the moral collapse that befell Baltimore. And it's all catalyzed by by policies, the policies of drug prohibition, the policies of mass arrests yep. that were championed by politicians high up than the police co- police commissioner or even the governor of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um and these pol- policies of mass arrests of drug prohibition were championed at the expense of actual police work. Yeah. Um, I think Jenkins and GTTF are rightfully portrayed as the villains, yes. But We Own the City wisely kind of pinholes out from this singular case to show you how and why people in power are incentivized, incentivized to commit these crimes. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the actual brilliance of We Own City yeah. and but to be honest, they're the brilliance of most of Simon's work, like, because it shows you why people do these things, you know, and it all stems from kind of institutional failure from the top down. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. It, it what surprises me, and I think I noticed something this in Simon's work as well, that within his storytelling, right, there will always be at least, or, or most of the time, there's this one kind of key conversation that is pretty under the radar, right? That underscores, you know, his kind of like personal understanding of why things happen, right? Whether it's in the wire, whether it's in um, um, the deuce, and uh, all of that, right? So, and for me, in in uh, we own this city, it's this. Uh, sit down right, with Nicole Steele and they talk about the war on drugs, right? And how mm. that is the genesis of this problem, right? And yep. how it's impossible for anyone to come up and say, look, we've lost this, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We need to start from scratch again. We need to relook how we're going to go do this. No one is going to come and say that. And we do what we do with what we can, right? Yep. And like that is so potent, right? To kind of fit that within the scope of everything else that is going on that we're trying to track and pay attention to as an audience. Um, mm. You know, just like a very quiet, very low-key scene of that happening, but really just details like um, the causation, more or less, of yep. like the situation that these characters find themselves in. And I love it when Simon does that, right? Because it's, mm. it's such a casual kind of like reference to that. It's like, look, if we weren't so caught up in all of this, we would see the reason. But the truth of the matter yep. is that we can't divorce one from the other. Um, mm. And that just speaks to the brilliance, right, of his, of his writing and his storytelling. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, of all the characters on on um, We Own the City, uh, Nicole Steele is actually the only fictional character that they made up. Um, she is mm-hmm. a conglomeration of several actual uh, DOJ civil rights prosecutors, but they, yep. they, they kind of, you know, completed her into one character. And... Every show, uh, Simon is known for no hand holding, but yep. he actually does hold your hand sometimes because, <laughs> uh, but, but, but the key is that like, it doesn't seem obvious. It seems very casual. It doesn't seem like exposition, you know? Yeah. And Nicole Steele, and the value of Nicole Steele is that she's able to explain the bird's eye view to you, like, as you, as you yes. just mentioned, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's great um, about the show. Um, yeah, I mean, any David Simon show is worth a watch, especially one where he returns to Baltimore here. So mm. uh, that's why this is one of my uh, favorite new shows of 2022. Um, any final thoughts before we move on? Oh, man. If you love The Wire, this is definitely worth a watch, right? Being able to watch like Wire alumni come back, right? Um, mm. And play against type, as in the case of um, Jamie Hector. Ma- it, yeah, I yeah. almost said Marlo, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly, right? Like, to be, it, yeah. it took me a moment. I was like, oh, okay, that's very uh different um yeah but like just to be able to see these guys come back right like it's a phenomenal kind of performances a phenomenal mm-hmm. like medium of storytelling or, or rather the his his um choices in the way to tell the story uh that mm. simon adopted here like it's new for him and it's fresh you know because i mean i love simon after a while like i know what to expect and this kind of like caught me a bit of guard and i loved it uh, just for that, right? It wasn't any less good. It wasn't any less, like, it wasn't gimmicky, right? Uh, to that point. Um, so, highly encourage you, if you're a big fan of Simon's work, that this is certainly worth a watch. If you're interested in anything that went down in Baltimore during that period of time, this is illuminating in a lot of ways that perhaps other news articles or even the Vice documentary was not. Mm, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Uh, agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, we move on from HBO to a streaming service, Apple TV Plus, oh, which yeah. is one hundred percent the streaming service of the year. This this fucking streaming Hands service is down. killing it, Hands killing down. it. It's they're crazy. like putting up banger after banger after banger. Yeah. I mean, 
Um, sorry to Netflix or Disney Plus, which you know like have more content. For sure. Amazon too. Yeah. But not as consistent content as Apple TV Plus. For sure. And and right at the top of that list, alongside Severance, is Apple TV's adaptation of Min Jin Lee's historical fiction epic Pachinko. Um, It is based on Min Jin Lee's historical fiction novel, and this is a beautiful series that chronicles the lives of an impoverished Korean family across four generations Mm -hmm. as they leave their homeland in a quest to survive and perhaps thrive. So it begins with the Japanese occupation of Korea in the early 1900s. And this era-spanning story is told through the eyes of a remarkable matriarch named Sunja, who is played by Yuna Jion as a child by Min Ha Kim mm. in young adulthood mm. and uh, the Oscar-winning uh, Yoon Yoo Jung as an elderly woman. Yeah. Um, so three different actresses across three different uh, eras of her life. Um, and she is the matriarch who helps this family triumph against a multitude of hardship through the many, many decades. Mm -hmm. Um, Unlike the chronological structure of the book, the TV show presents the story Mm non-linearly. It juxtaposes Sunja's journey with that of her grandson, Solomon, who is a successful businessman in the 1980s, who is faced with a dilemma. Does he sort of abandon his roots or does he honor them at the expense of his career? Um, As adapted by Suhyu, who actually... um, was the showrunner for season one of The Terror. So I have mad respect for Suhu. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also directed by Kogonada and Justin Chun. This series is a sweeping in its scope. It is gorgeous in its visual production and yet intensely intimate in its ambitions. Mm-hmm. Pachinko's immersion into the history and politics and different periods is certainly educational for audiences, but it only forms the backdrop for its finely calibrated multi-generational family drama from its detailed observation of the clash between Korean and Japanese cultures to its rich focus on character work over plot machination. Pachinko is a sumptuous and lyrical and graceful observation of human perseverance and tenacity that will stir your soul. You might think it's not universal, but a story like this is definitely universal despite whatever setting it's in. Mm. Um, since Pachinko was, you know, your number one pick, uh, give me your thoughts about Pachinko and what made it great. Oh, man. Um, it's it's hard to describe how striking it was to be watching Pachinko, right? Like, mm. I can't place my finger on the fact whether or not it was because it was beautifully shot, because the performances were spectacular, because the lines that were delivered with nuance and care and and, mm. and subtlety in and and the attention that they paid, right? Even in the subtitling to whether or not something was being uh spoken in Japanese or something was being spoken in Korean, right? Uh, yeah. like all of those like little little things added up to what was for me an incredibly satisfying emotional experience. Uh, and mm. I say satisfying in the way that, like, because of its non-linear storytelling, uh, a little like what we own the city, right? Uh, which, mm. and, and as you have pointed out, diverges from the novel itself, right? It gives yeah. this wonderful freedom for the showrunners to, again, juxtapose scenes that uh, at first glance seem un natural like it wouldn't be your first pick to juxtapose right like they're not uh the they're the scenes that um the time jump allows them to do 
it's not something that you would naturally think, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense at first glance. But upon watching these scenes in their sequence, right, and the way that they play against each other, form an incredible conversation. Uh, and I think that that in and of itself, uh, it, it is conversation that underpins the entirety of Pachinko, right? So much mm. of its most powerful scenes are not necessarily conflict, are not necessarily action, but are these very well-crafted scenes of conversation and dialogue between characters over multiple generations and how mm. they it, it becomes almost this mood piece, right? Without losing yep. any of the detail of these characters' lives and where they're situated at the point in time that we are shown. Um, mm. On top of that, you give me an amazing score by Nico Moli that at no mm. point in time robs a scene of anything. It's always to under, uh, underscore what's going on. It's always to add kind of the mood in there and the yep. fantastic costuming. And on top of that, like the color palette, like so many of these things are gorgeous and lush and full. Uh, and despite the fact that we know how things turn out in the end, right? There yeah. is, the pacing allows for you to follow the story in such a way that there is a tension held um, mm. uh, while you are following these characters and slowly being invested in their story, both forward and backward um, at the same time. So, like, yep. there's just so many things that work so well together. And to have all of these great things in the same pot and stirred in a way that presents something complete to you, right? Uh, that at the end of the series, you're just like, okay, it still gives you a sense of hope while having explored mm. all the various kind of, like, threads and tension points and resolve them in a way that may may not necessarily give you like the complete picture, but just enough for it to hit home and just enough for you to feel good. Just enough for you to like kind of like get an understanding of this very long slice of one family's life uh, within mm. history. Uh, but it isn't enough for you to walk away from watching that and say like, damn, okay, that was uh, an experience and a story uh like may not necessarily be the most unique presentation of it, right? But mm. like so complete and so whole and wholesome is the best that I can reach mm. for at this point in time. Yeah, which is why I like Pacheco yeah. is my top pick out of the four. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I feel like like you you nailed it. The the pleasures and the depths of Pachinko are very tactile. You yes. feel like you can touch it and reach it, you know. And another aspect of the show that I really, really liked and of the book too is that Japan's occupation of Korea, which lasted from the early 1900s to the end of World War II, mm -hmm. hasn't been chronicled much by Western art, yeah. or Japanese art for that matter. Um, but even if this were well-trodden territory, I think Pacheco still covers the subject with such artistry and grace yeah. that it will still feel special. This is a family saga that combines the denseness of prose fiction with visuals, yes. um, you know, with the specific advantage of television, you mm -hmm. know. Um, the depiction of the Korean occupation or, or Jap Japan's occupation of Korea is something that you don't. I've I've not seen uh, in mainstream media, you know. And yeah. I appreciate that in the same way that I appreciate, say, the depiction of the partition in Miss Marvel. You know, they are mm. very different shows, but yes. you get what I mean yes. like, with the the, <laughs> the specialness of it. You know. Yeah. Um, and I think the first and foremost example of uh the, I guess the leader uh, the, the 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 thing that the 
the show hangs on yes. is Sunja, right? And the three actresses that play Sunja. Mm-hmm. We already know that Yu Jung Yoon from Minari is like incredible. Yes. But this is actually the first screen acting role for Yuna Jeon and Minha Kim. Mm-hmm. And I think they hold the screen just as effortlessly as their Oscar-winning uh, counterpart. You know? yeah. um, their mannerisms are so perfectly in sync. So, you know, like I can see Sunja's in them all. You know, mm. When they smile or cry, like, I can see the others in them. And that's great. Um, the Minha Kim version, though, has very few reasons to smile and a lot of reasons to cry because she exists in, I think, the most emotionally <sighs> and politically challenging phase of the story. Yes. You know, she grows up in the relative tranquility of the boarding house her parents run mm-hmm. in a rural village. And the teenage Sunja falls under the spell of a guy called Han Su, who is played by Lee Min Ho, yep. uh, who is a sharp and charismatic local official who has decided that the best way to survive the occupation is to collaborate with the Japanese and adopt as many trappings of their culture as he can to the point where he becomes a quasi-Yakuza figure mm-hmm. in, in organized crime. Um, later on, uh, an incredibly powerful episode involving the great Kanto earthquake of 1923 offers more insights into how he wound up that way. Yeah. Um, what makes the episode so great beyond its visuals, beyond the story, again, another aspect of a uh, history that has not been depicted a lot in, in Western media, yeah. is that this entire episode was not in the book. Mm. And it offers so much context to Hansu, who was just... Probably the only one-dimensional character in the book, uh, yeah. you know, just the villain. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this this gives you like a a more appreciation for how he came to be that way. You yeah. Know? Um, the Hansu uh, and Sunja affair grows incredibly messy, and it requires the intercession of a, a pastor called Isaac, a kind of a traveling Christian missionary who who agrees to marry her to to um you know to, to prevent shame from falling upon her family when she has uh, a baby out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Sunja sort of recedes a bit for for the scenes that take place in the 1980s, which feature Solomon yes. uh, returning to Japan from his life in New York to help close a huge real estate deal and to search once again for his long-missing stepsister mm-hmm. uh, who disappeared uh, a long time ago from his life. Um, he and uh, you know this Japanese colleague, um, I think uh, a sort of love interest, which is again made up for the show, but I like her also. <laughs> I do, yeah. Um, um, they, 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 they have this conversation about uh, when they're in America, they like to, the, the, the white people like to play the game, uh, which Asian am I? Yeah. Guessing game. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and Korea is rarely a, a top guess. Uh, and I, I guess I can sympathize because, you know, Malay is not either. Mm-hmm. And um, Solomon just, you know, he just nods if anyone suggests he's Japanese. And over the course of the season, we see how he feels caught between the country he grew up in as an immigrant and yeah. the, the one where he built his career. Um, and the other country, the, the motherland, shall we say, the one that his grandmother tells him about. And, and, all, and those questions of cultural identity wrap satisfyingly around an examination of, uh, of the you know, go-go Japanese economy of, of, the, of the 1980s, yeah. which feels kind of similar to the moments before and after the bursting housing bubble of the, of the late 2000s. You know? mm-hmm. um, beyond the themes and beyond the acting and everything, as we said, Pachinko is impressive on all levels. It is visually stunning. The knockout score you've already mentioned is gorgeous to look at in every era. The lush greens of Sunja's pastoral childhood are just as vivid as the kind of 
cool metropolis blues of 1980s mm-hmm. uh, Japan, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in Solomon's world, you know. Um, the earthquake story even, like, um, sh- not only shifts its perspective to Hansu for an entire hour, but adopts a more raw and a more impressionistic style yeah. to capture both the devastation of the events and its uglier aftermath in which Japanese citizens, this is real, used it as an excuse to murder Korean immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, but even subtler devices, like color coding the subtitles, like you said, mm. to clarify when characters are speaking in Korean or Japanese, or sometimes both in one conversation, works wonders at making the story feel more immersive and more poignant. Yes. You know, and I'll be remiss if I didn't point out, you know, before I give it back to you, the, the, the dazzling opening sequence, which I never oh skipped. Oh my god, yes. Um, to live for today by the grassroots. It's set in a pachinko parlor um, and it features the the great uh, cast of pachinko uh, dancing in the pachinko parlor. It's mm-hmm. almost weirdly similar to another very different show, Peacemaker, which also features a great dance sequence as its opening. Yeah. I just want every show now to have a dance sequence opening. Why not yeah. get your cast to dance? Absolutely, great, yeah. right? To have it in like this yeah. brightly neon colored like pachinko parlor with them wearing their period clothes. Like, it's mm. so good. It is so, so good. Always watch it. Never skip it, right? And, like, I, I think that's yeah. important, too, because they do mix it up for several episodes, right? Like, in the case yep. where we're transitioning from one episode to the other and it ends on a cliffhanger, right? They don't mm. bring back the dance scene until, like, much later on in the episode or, like, they skip it mm. entirely just to underpin where you are at in the story itself uh, is yep. incredibly important, I think, when we are thinking about uh, the, the platforms that we find you know, uh, shows like this on, which is streaming, right? Like, it's so easy for us to go into kind of like Netflix mode and just like, oh, you know what? Skip intro, skip intro, because it's always going to be the same thing. Um, Mm. But being aware of what your audience needs as they are watching the show is like just another kind of like added, you know, uh, uh, attention that I really love about like Pachinko. Like, at no point in time do I feel like, yeah, it's just there because, you know, we should have opening sequences because they are meant to be there and all of that. Uh, mm. Yeah, so like powerful, powerful stuff, Pachinko, right? Uh, I um, I did remember, I, I did go and read the novel after the last time around you waxed lyrical about it. I can't remember if yep. we did it on genre or not. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and being able to kind of like uh, compare and kind of like contrast the whole thing. I don't think you need to read the novel in order to be able to enjoy this TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in fact, if anything, like uh, whether or not you start with this or you start with the novel, right? Like your appreciation of what is a very well-told story uh, mm. in either medium uh, is is enhanced by you know just being introduced to it altogether. Yep. Mm. Yep, yep, definitely. Um, okay, two last questions before we move on yeah. to uh, another HBO show. Um, okay, first one, let me pose it to you. Do you feel that the Solomon... Uh, this one is like the criticism portion, now, but yep. very. this is very nitpicky stuff. Like, we obviously <laughs> love the show to highlight it. Like, yes. But um, do you feel that the Solomon portions were weaker than the Sunja portions and that dragged the show down a bit? Uh, and uh, number two, what do you think about the Earthquake episode, which we haven't talked about yet? Right. Uh, okay, so the Solomon portions while i understand it it's it's place as a device didn't mm-hmm. offer enough right like mm-hmm. i feel there were things that could have been explored that thematically would have made sense for example his possible rivalry slash love interest with uh oh no what's her name uh her, her, her japanese colleague yeah the japanese the, the colleague girl, yeah. um yeah right 
slash love interest slash love yeah. interest because like I felt there was so much there like it's well acted enough and there is enough kind of like mystery to their dialogue that would suggest there's plenty there to uncover that we never kind of like you know unpack you know and then yep. in addition to that I feel like within Solomon's era as well uh, not being able to have more about Hannah's story also seemed to mm. make the modern modern quote-unquote uh, sequences feel less full right uh, mm. but at the same time i understand like in a runtime like this uh and i'm not really sure what apple tv's uh um um uh what their gen formatting. yeah their formatting is like right when they spec these things when they spec the shows mm -hmm. uh i i guess there are some limitations there but there mm -hmm. was just so much because i mean at the end of the day it's 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 a genealogical problem because Sunja is there from the beginning, right? So every generation involves her. Uh, every kind of yep. like era involves her. And because of that, yep. like it feels like it's so much heavily weighted in her perspective or rather with mm. her story that intertwines with everybody else's that I'm not sure if mm -hmm. we could necessarily say that we can do without like Solomon's story. It's a neat idea. I like the, the back and forth, the kind of poetic juxtaposition and all yeah. of that. But the book, like all close to 1,000 pages of it, <laughs> is soon just POV. And, and Solomon, to be honest, really doesn't play a big part in the book at all. Like, and yeah. they, had to be, they had to beef it up because they had this, this idea to flash back and forth, right? Yeah. So they had to make stuff up for Solomon. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff also wasn't enough. Yes. And the stuff that they did bring up could have been explored more. But... Once I heard that this wasn't a mini series and they're setting up a season two, then I was like, ah, okay, yeah. they're, they're saving some stuff. That's cool. We'll probably find out more about Hannah and his relationship later on in season yeah. two um, and, and all of that. Yeah. And what about the Earthquake episode? I thought that was the standout of the, of the season. Yes, I, I wasn't expecting it. I feel like the Earthquake episode was kind of sudden. Or at least that was yep. my feeling at the point in time where it was inserted, right? Like it, mm. it, it, it happens like shortly after, um, shortly after Hansu has a small interaction with with Noah, right? His uh, unbeknownst to the boy, uh, his father, the uh, mm. father, kind of a father son interaction on the street, right? And then he he goes in kind of that sequence. Um, yep. fascinating, fascinating. Uh, I didn't expect a backstory like that and obviously because it was created for the show itself uh, it mm -hmm. added so much in a very short period of time to understand his motivations right and yep. he's no longer just like oh this like mysterious man in a suit with like a dark history uh, kind mm -hmm. of nonsense and turns out to be an asshole which you kind of thought about it anyway it, it yeah. makes more sense right and adding that makes it so much more compelling to in understanding uh, why Sunja made the choices that she made. Uh, while she mm. wasn't necessarily privy to his history, as far as we can tell uh, from what is shown yeah. in the show itself, right? Like, I, I do feel like like every every character's backstory plays out in eventually, right? In their character, in the choices they make, in the way that they save things. And for them to mm. have created something entirely new and in pretty yep. much one episode kind of explain why he makes the decisions much earlier in the series itself um, mm -hmm. was kind of brilliant, you know. Uh, the look and feel of it felt uh, era-appropriate, right? Um, mm. The devastation was... Uh, 
I mean, it wasn't shown in detail, right? It wasn't like amazing kind of CGI or anything like that, but it was just enough to show the human suffering and the chaos of mm. the moment for to, to underpin the emotional beats of those sequences, right? And I think that was like extremely important in for us to understand and to add meat to that particular character. Now, I wish mm. that the same kind of treatment could have been given to some of the other side characters, particularly in mm. like Solomon's uh, era, right? Um, but again, it could be a time thing. And also, of course, we could see all of that in season two, which I hope we do, right? Like seeing how they mm. did that for Hansu, who is really kind of paper thin in the novel itself, um, gives me hope that like uh, we're going to get a lot more good stuff as we're going along. It could very well just be, you know, um, nitpicking on a season one issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was. It was my understanding that this was a mini series up until season two was announced. Uh, after the finale, mm. so, um, a bit of my disappointment went away when I realized that they were saving stuff. So yeah. okay, cool, yeah. cool, cool. Do you feel? I get it. Like, uh, given given the the amount of original stuff that they put in, do you feel like season two will have enough legs still drawing from the novel itself while adding on in the kind of more modern era? Yeah, they still have uh, 60s and 70s to cover. That is true. Um, yeah. And I think uh, Solomon's story will be progressing linearly. So we might see a progression from the 80s to a made-up 90s in the show's fictional timeline. So nice. They could do that too. Okay, yeah. Okay. yeah, looking forward to that for sure. Definitely. Um, yeah, so catch uh, Pachinko on Apple TV Plus and go to any local bookstore or the library to read Pachinko if you want, Lee Min Ho. Mm -hmm. if, uh, um, uh, if you want to check out my interview with the offer of Pachinko. Um, I have one actually from, <laughs> uh, from a few years back in 2017, I believe, uh, when the offer came to Singapore um, for a talk and I managed to grab a few minutes to talk to them. Um, so yeah, check that out if you want to um, hear her thoughts about and her fears. Like, like basically, I, here's a real side story that is nothing to do with the show <laughs> at all. Yeah. But I was told specifically by uh, um by her publicist, the office publicist, that I was not to bring up the Apple TV show at all. Oh, really? Yeah, specifically say like, you know, because of the NDA, she can't say right. you know, what it's going to be about, what it's right. going to be different and everything, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, um, I carefully added that question at the end of the interview, you know, like we got 15 <laughs> minutes for the interview, right? Yeah. So like at, at, min at minute 14, if I ask the question, if the if the publicist wants to cut me off, you know, yeah. then Olga to Oh well, I already got most of the interview, so it's no no loss, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had to try lah. So I asked about the Apple TV show. What do you think? You know, and she was so scared of it. She was so against um some of the changes that that was that were proposed to her. Yeah. you know, she has since she has since lightened up on that lah. Yeah. upon seeing the show, you know, mm -hmm. but but I can't. But man, she was so anti the show. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, and I think like she. She might have gotten in trouble for like bad mouthing Apple TV and like stuff and the writers' room and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, in my interview, so I'm sorry about that, but I had to ask like, It's my job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I would love. I mean, I I I hope that now. Uh, honestly, from what I'm understanding from my general searches, Pachinko is still extremely underwatched, right? Uh, and mm. because like people aren't familiar with the uh, with the with the original novel or the fact yeah. that Apple TV just doesn't have as many subscribers as any other streaming platform at the moment, uh, yep. you know. But overall, it has been an overwhelming great response from uh, viewers and critics alike. Uh, mm. I'm curious to know how what her feelings are now. 
you know, yep. uh, and, and kind of like moving forward into season two as well. Um, yes, but, uh, definitely. Yeah, I'll keep a lookout and see, you know, if she if she says anything. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, go to Potwire if you want to check out my interview with Min Jin Lee. Um, she also has a new book out, by the way. Uh, so Ooh, go check that out as well. Nice. Um, yeah, um, I was actually interviewing her in promotion for this book that just came out, but it took her three years to write it. <laughs> uh, but she, she tells me that she takes about six to seven years to write a book because she spends three to four years just in, on research, you know. Yeah. I'm, um, her, her latest book is actually about tuition centers, and you can guess why she came to Singapore. <laughs> uh, well, yes, yeah. Uh, anyways, um, let's move on to HBO to talk about minks. Mm. Um, there's this really famous saying, right? It's uh, hard to define the difference between arts and pornography. Yeah, but you know it when you see it. This show cleverly skirts all that because this is art about pornography. Um, minks is a HBO Max show that follows ambitious 1970s feminist Joyce as she reluctantly teams up with a sleazy but sweet porn publisher to launch the first erotic magazine mm-hmm. for the female gaze. Um, the publisher, Doug, who's played by Jake Johnson, sees their mag as a way to capture a yet untapped market while Joyce is determined to launch a truly progressive magazine full of incendiary op-eds. Um, Together, the mismatched pair and their you know, whole cadre of fun office mates deliver a joyful new addition to the workplace sitcom genre. Mm-hmm. Um, Mings is a show that is very breezy, easy to watch, and powered by pleasure, and it delivers it in spades. Uh, it's created by um, Alan Rappaport, and it kind of you know, opens with Joyce's dreams. You know, Joyce is like this... Uh, second-gen feminist and has always wanted to launch a revolutionary magazine called The Matriarchy Awakens to bring <laughs> um, feminism to women everywhere. However, the only interested publisher she can find is a hustling porn guy called Doug and he's not interested yeah. in her pious political rag but an off-handed di- dig she makes about a magazine full of naked men marketed to women yeah. catches his eye, right? Yeah. And, Doug convinces Joyce to enter his world in the underbelly of the valley where our prim and proper heroine, almost comically so, I mean, this is a sitcom, yeah. uh, must overcome her own inhibitions and re-examine her preconceptions. Uh, so her creation is a magazine called Minx, the title of the show, which will sneak in her politics in between pages of uh, man meat. Um, there's a lot of penis in the show. Um, so if you're bothered by that, you probably shouldn't watch this show. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, and you know, it's not just the two of them, although they, they are the driving force. Uh, Minx also has a great, uh, rich ensemble cast of talent mm-hmm. who bring the laughs and drama and everything. Um, what do you think about Minx? I appreciate equal opportunity nudity. Yeah, my yeah. my TV shows, yeah. right? Like props to them for like just a copious amount of it for, but from both sides. Uh, mm. you know, uh, I I think the the premise of it was kind of like really caught me. I remember when you were first talking about this uh, over day or something like that. Uh, yeah, I was just like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I'll I'll kind of check it out. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's a welcome addition to to like you know a whole bunch of like amazing kind of workplace comedies. Uh, mm. it being turned on its head with its premise right of this kind of like uh chock full of dicks uh feminist magazine. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, uh, that in and of itself is enough to drive most of the story. But on top of that, you put a whole bunch of like misfit, lovable characters, right? 
uh, who mm. are not perfect and uh, completely and deeply flawed in their own way as they just kind of like try to achieve their goals and dreams in a very haphazard almost way. Like no one really knows what they're doing at given moment in time and they kind of like stumble in and out of like these hijinks and success at the same time. You know, uh, yep. like having that kind of stew all together makes Minx extremely enjoyable and easy to watch and easy to be invested in kind of like the characters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will mm. say overall, there were portions, I think, especially when we kind of go into like second act conflict, uh, that felt a little underdeveloped, right? Um and and could have like perhaps needed a little bit more kind of like screen time for for some of the relationships and how they get resolved, uh, mm. but you know outside of that I have very very kind of few complaints like it was easy to kind of put on kind of like breeze through very a lot of like laugh out loud moments a lot of like tongue in cheek and very meta kind of like uh, references to you know um the po- just porn industry in general and the, uh, the era in which they were situated at. Right. Uh, yep. And yeah, just all around really kind of fun in a very, like it doesn't, it it feels more wholesome than the premise tells you, you know. Mm, uh, it's, a, it's actually a very, very sweet show. Yeah. And I really, really kind of like enjoyed that part, like amidst what, you know, a lot of people would dismiss as kind of like a, a sleazy cash grab. Uh, not the show necessarily, but what the characters are doing, right, within the story mm. itself, right, turns out to be honestly very sweet, very wholesome, and very kind of like emotionally rewarding. Um, yeah. As a kind of underdog story, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and those were like the most enjoyable parts for me for Minx, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, Ophelia Levibon, who plays Joyce, right, with this kind of um, wide-eyed, kind of bordering on real-world naivety, you yeah. know, but not exactly lacking in charm. Like, there is something enduring about her, despite her being a very outspoken in her second-wave yeah. feminist beliefs, you know, to the point where she's willing to literally lecture a cat collar at a construction site yeah. for his behavior. Yeah. Uh, but the show actually, like, doesn't eternally position her in the role of being right in her approach oh, yeah. to smashing the patriarchy. <laughs> in, in, in fact, it is true working with Doug, someone who only seems like a misogynist at first blush, yeah. you know, as, as well as the rest of his kind of uh, porn uh, publishing company, the Bottom Dollar Crew. Uh, it's true working with them that Joyce finds some of her biggest preconceived notions <laughs> about what, what constitutes feminism, you know, most directly and rightfully challenged. Yes. You know? um, it is it is uh, Johnson's character who challenges her, and there is no coincidence that she becomes a more winning character the moment she, uh, or, or the more that she starts to surrender her tight grip of ownership around the concept of what the minx is, yeah. um, which in turn allows the magazine to be the best version of it it can possibly be. Yeah. You know? And in, in contrast to that, the character of Doug is almost tailor-made for, for Johnson, yeah. who is just uh, this guy in every show or film that you've ever seen him in. You yeah, know? I know. It's just uh, an extension of Nick, right? From New Girl. It's it, it's basically like what what would happen if Nick was put in, in a Doug Renetti suit, more or less. Yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, the the two of them drive the drama and the comedy, but the rest of the bottom dollar were are really good as well. I mean, got a shout out to uh, Tina and, and, and the rest of them. Yeah. And, and Ming's kind of veers 
closer to resembling a workplace comedy or series solely by the strength of its ensemble cast mm. because you know the show drops the button-up joys in a world inhabited inhabited by free thinking and unashamed personalities and the results are the comedy goal that's the comedy goal to be mimed you know um Characters like Bambi, photographer Richie, and all that have their own artistic insight to staging and art direction and things like that. You know, yeah. um, they offer perspectives that are the the naive uh, uh, main character might not have. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But there, there isn't really too much to to talk about the show because it actually, at its core, is actually just a really fun, breezy workplace sitcom, mm-hmm. which we haven't gotten in a while, and and that's why I liked it. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts on Minx before we move on? Oh man, uh, yeah, just um, there are a lot of like great kind of I don't know like hidden lessons, but surprising kind of lessons to go along the way. Uh, mm. My particular favorite is Joyce and her her relationship with Shane is yep. one of the most, like, funny uh, portions of that with, like, a very, very kind of powerful lesson at the end of that for both Joyce and for the audience that's watching, right? Uh, mm-hmm. About power dynamics and, and you know, kind of, like, the relationship of that for a self-professed feminist. Um, as you mentioned earlier, right? That's, like, to me, one of the my favourite kind of, like, plays on the entire thing, you know? Uh, has Minx been greenlit for a second season? Uh, yes, it has. Yeah, on HBO Max. Excellent. Okay, I'll be looking forward to that for sure. Yep, yep. Uh, finally, we'll be moving back to HBO. Um, surprising. Um, well, actually, it's unsurprising that like, HBO is HBO. <laughs> um, tr- three of our four picks are HBO shows. Yes. Um, but, you know, um, we already praise Apple TV for being the best streaming service. But, I mean, channel in any you know, internet or regular TV or cable or whatever, HBO is still king, like, in my opinion, of creating top-notch shows. Their track record is so impeccable, you know. Um, yep. the, the last season of Game of Thrones, notwithstanding. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Game of Thrones did start out as a great show, you know, so yeah. they, they, they really QC the shit. Um, and a new HBO show in partnership with A24 is Irma Vep. Um, so, I got to give a little background on Irma mm-hmm. Vep. A little, a little background might help. Yeah, um, yep. um, Irma Vep exists already as a 1996 film. Yes. And as a new limited series, which are both written and directed by French director Olivier Assayas. Mm-hmm. You know. In the meta movie in 1996, Assayas portrayed uh, a small struggling film crew led by an aging and mentally unstable director, René Vidal, mm-hmm. um, as the crew and Vidal attempted to remake a 1915 French serial called Les Vampires. Um, the source was a 10-part silent noir about a ring of master criminals who called themselves the vampires, mm-hmm. one of whom, one of, the, one of the ringleaders, was the alluring and deadly Irma Vep. Um, I don't need to point out the anagram to you, though. it's quite obvious. And <laughs> she is um, the show an evil deed. Yes, yeah, and and she is an evil diva who slinks around in a black cat suit, stealing jewels or abetting in kidnapping and murder. Um, so in the earlier work in the nineteen sixty six film, mm-hmm. nineteen ninety six film, I'm sorry, um, Asayas casted Hong Kong action star Maggie Chung yeah. in a fictionalized as a fictionalized version of herself. Um, and she is kind of sort of a fish out of water in Paris. She is bemused and unsettled by the neurotic French types buzzing around her, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and these these characters of lightly satirized post new wave artists, you know, yeah. um, including the bipolar director, 
um, the the costume designer who becomes infatuated with the charismatic actress. Um, and it was brainy and beautifully shot. It was kind of a cinephile's dream diary, mm-hmm. um, attracted to yet critical of film culture, globalization, and the eroticized icon of a, of a supervillain like Irma Vep, you know. So it's sort of like this deconstruction of the French film industry in a very, very meta way mm-hmm. uh, with Maggie Chung as your proxy, as an outsider proxy into uh, a different culture. Yep. 26, 26 years later, in a new HBO miniseries, Isaias has created a different, younger Rene, now played by Vincent McCain, who casts uh, an American star, Mira Harburg, Alicia Vikander, mm-hmm. as uh, Irma Vep in a remake of his remake. Uh, <laughs> so in this fictional universe, the actual Irma Vep, the 1996 film, does exist. And Maggie Chung was in it. And Maggie Chung was also the director's wife. Yes. Uh, layers of meta upon meta. Mm. Um, so this new actress, Alicia Vikander, uh, Mira Harburg. Mira has just finished this MCU-like mega flick called Doomsday. And she's swatting away office by her agent Zelda, played by uh, Carrie Brownstein, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so she's kind of pitching her to play the female Silver Surfer and what, stuff like that. Yeah. And she's kind of been... Becoming disillusioned by starring in blockbusters and she wants to make, you know, art, I guess. Um, (laughs) And she wants meaning in her career. Um, As for Rene, his depression and rage issues are barely kept in check by Matt, which in turn complicates the production company's attempts to insure him. Um, And, you know, the the aforementioned Jade appears to Rene in the middle of the night, you know, the Maggie Chung character, um, to gently chastise him for recycling their shared memories in this in this remake of a remake, you know. Yep. Uh, and yes, you know, as I mentioned, in real life, Asayas was really married to Chung. Yep. So the Jade-Rene scene is a barely veiled confession from artist to his muse, mm. you know. Um, we start catalog- cataloging other instances of art imitating life, imitating art. Yeah. But, you know, um, we don't have that much time today. So <laughs> I'm just going to say that, that that happens a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about this remake of a remake, about remaking a movie uh, of a remake? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, this this is as cinema as it gets, right? Like, the yeah. inner workings yeah. of cinema displayed as cinema, uh, mm. displayed as cinema, captured for cinema. And it's in it's kind of insane to wrap your head around how many layers there are, but you don't have to, right? Because I think, like, the characters in and of themselves are extremely well-rounded out for you to be following and invested in them without necessarily, like, taking every kind of, like, meta layer into account. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, like, the... um, what they chose to keep within this fictional kind of universe, right? Uh, you know, the references to, of course, the the original kind of serial and, of course, you know, um, the original movie with Maggie Chung in it. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Maggie Chung and I was so excited to watch mm. that. Uh, you know, and um, just, like, a very different take, I feel. Like, like in, in, in the beginning of the series, right, uh, given that I had just rewatched the original 1996 Irma Vep just to brush up a little, you know, I think, oh, really? Alicia, uh, Alicia Vikander as an American actress who would kind of, like, take the place of Maggie Chong. Like, I love Alicia mm. Vikander, but she's no Maggie Chong, right? Mm. Uh, I, I understood that decision, like, further down the line. In fact, it's even addressed and explained by Rene himself uh, in yeah. one of the wonderful kind of, like, um, dream sequence, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. with 
Jade Lee, who played Maggie Chung, who played herself. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I I love like these little little things that just like make my brain tick as I'm enjoying the general drama and politics and difficulties of being on set on and in production. You know, mm-hmm. uh, with all of that added on top with the personal drama that is still unfolding as the series goes along. Uh, you know, in particular, I think like uh, Mira's kind of like very tumultuous personal life and how that mm-hmm. locates her with her need to be on the set of Irma Vep as a kind of vindication of her her talent, perhaps, mm-hmm. or even like, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, a change in perspective for her career. Uh, yep. Like all of those things add up to what is an extremely enjoyable and meaty um, mm-hmm. venture or look into the process of making a, 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 a piece of film, right? Um, or TV show, I don't know. They argue about it in 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 the series as well. So that's up to the audience to kind of decide what it actually becomes in the end. Uh, I love mm. the uh the the tone changes when we go from what is seen on screen. That means like whatever sequences is supposed to be within the ser- series that they're shooting itself, and switching back and forth to what is the real world and what is imagined is very seamless and very beautiful and very believable. Uh, mm. And I really enjoy times when that happens, right? Uh, and um, there's not much hand-holding all in all, you know? Mm. Uh, and Irma Vep, the series, is a very different animal from what we got in 1996, for sure. Uh, for, yeah. you know, I say to come in with this... Uh, additional kind of twist to everything that he's already done as homage and as building upon his own film as well mm. is uh is is fascinating in so many ways. I can't wait to see how this like develops in its totality to see what I, I'm not sure if the what the point of it is or what like you know what the message of it is necessarily but at this point in time I'm all along for the ride. Mm, yeah, yeah. I the message can be something as simple as art imitating life, imitating art, lah, which is what these kind of meta stories of filmmakers looking for catharsis mm-hmm. are eventually all about, you know. Yeah. Um, and if you think, you know, these thick layers of celluloid history and biography and self-reference might lead to kind of a shaky uh, f- uh, product, uh, think again. It's mm-hmm. actually stuffed with some very colourful characters oh, who yeah. are speaking with wistful, believable dialogue. There's attractive locations. There's graceful camera work. Um, Irma Vep really floats. It's a really easy to watch behind-the-scenes comedy with enough <laughs> heartbreak and humour to keep it grounded. It is... I mean, true, it is very French. There are some serious, <laughs> passionate conversations about art versus commerce or truth versus fiction. Yeah. All over wine or espressos, of course, because yeah. you know, it's, it's French, you know. And then there are discussions about the differences between uh, sexualization or eroticism. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of great chemistry between many of the actors here. Um, and the series is also ridiculously bingeable and addictive. It looks lavish and lovely, you know, um, when Mira drones her cat suit, she moves and acts like she's possessed, which turns out is again part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, also expanded for this mini series are various subplots. You know, um, the actors who want meteor roles, the actors <laughs> who want more prov- provocative roles, uh, producers who have more money-minded motives 
than art in play. Yeah. Um, Hollywood agents who are pushing you to take superhero films. It's all very funny, but somehow all very believable. Yeah. Um, and all the romantic conflicts connecting the on-camera stars and your supporting assistants and crew members. It's it's a bit like a, a show business version of, of Downton Abbey with the <laughs> upstairs and downstairs folks, you know, constantly shifting yeah. power plays, you know. Yeah. Um it's very playful, it's very sexy and and also sometimes, a lot of times flat out funny. Mm-hmm. Um I have like one particular instance, this is running gag, right? Yeah. That really made me <laughs> Love the show. It is, um, I think it's something in particular that a lot of TV critics, not just myself, I think uh, just in general, uh, yeah. TV critics have complained about this a lot over the last 10 years. Uh. It's the, the fucking highfalutin uh, indie art house film director coming into the TV world and insisting yeah. that they're making a 10-part film. Uh, yeah. And just like, you know, like, like uh, TV, uh, television is a taboo word to them and has been and it will, con- will continue will be. <laughs> and that's why that's why the productions, or that's why the TV shows suck because they don't know the episodic format. Yeah. They treat it like one elongated film and the fact that Rene keeps insisting that this is a 10-part film, not uh, it, it's not a TV series. It's rather a very, very long film yeah. told in 10 parts. Yeah. And you know, even his psychiatrist is like, that's a show. Yeah. Uh, okay. And it's really something. That really got me. Yeah. It was super Yeah, f- yeah. It was super funny. I think the uh post like dinner party drinks in the garden where they're arguing whether or not it's a film or a TV series or it's content, right? I yeah. was just like, oh my god. Like it is so I feel like I've had those conversations before, you know. Mm. Uh, but the way in which they they present it and the way in which the banter just kind of goes on in 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 sort of in good humor, I guess. Like it, I I get it. Like that recurring gag is is very effective when they bring it about, for sure. Yep, 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 yep. Definitely. Um. Yeah. There's there's a lot of very um inside baseball kind of talk, you know. Yeah. Um. About about cinema and about uh global box office blockbusters and intimacy coordinators, which is a fairly new thing, you know. Um. Post Weinstein and all of that, you know. But it's all presented with enough wit and genuine affection that. I guess outsiders to cinema or TV industry wouldn't feel so lost, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Oliver Assayas himself was a French film critic before he became a filmmaker, and it's no surprise that his best films are criticisms <laughs> of the French film industry <laughs> slash TV industry. Yeah. Um, it obviously, obviously, he loves what he's doing, but uh, he obviously wants to point out some of the flaws and, and foibles of the industry as well. And yeah. with this new Elm of Web series, I think he is he's getting to do that as um. A ten-part movie, <laughs> but 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 irony is right. Every episode actually does feel episodic. Yeah, like he, like yeah, yeah. I get that he is like sort of self-mocking lah. Yes, uh, that type of thing. So really, really great. I would recommend uh Omar Vep on HBO. You can catch it on HBO Go in Singapore as well. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we move on to our top uh, ten shows of the year? Yes, uh, there is there is no real need to actually watch the 1996 movie except for additional context. I think mm, the show right. does give you enough to uh, enough within the series itself to kind of give you an idea of where that yeah. stands within this fictional universe. Uh, mm. But yeah, but you know, if you love kind of like strange, uh, you know, film in film French art house stuff uh, with Maggie Cho like you know there's mm-hmm. no harm kind of checking it out it's a very short uh, short yep. film to begin with yes yes uh, but yeah I, I think uh, of all of that like really props to Alicia Vikander for like bringing an incredible believable you know nuanced performance uh, as 
as uh you know Mira Harbour. I think I was very I mean I loved her from a lot of the things that she's done, maybe save for the mm-hmm. two Mater movies. Uh but mm-hmm. yeah, like Mira is is a, a, a Mira's performance is a particular highlight for me. Uh because mm. it is played with a lot of care and with a lot of nuance and it's extremely believable. Mm, definitely. Um and yeah, that wraps it up for our top four highlights for best new shows of the year. Yeah. Uh this is our a mid-year rundown, so shows that came after June uh were cut off. Yes. But we will be covering the second half of the year. Uh at the end of the year, of course, mm-hmm. what we hold, you know, we'll be covering the best films for the second half of the year and the best TV as well. Yeah. Um and I've already picked out a few for each category. So <laughs> um I'm I'm already eager to jump into that one. But for now. Let's delve into the top five series overall mm. that we have uh, for the mid-year of 2022. Yeah. Um, so how this works is Isa will pick five shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I've seen more, I'm going to let him pick his five shows yeah. and not do any crossover picks. Yep. Uh, but at, at the end, I will tell you what my real top five is. Uh, but Absolutely. We won't, we, we won't cross over. So we will have 10 different picks, which is why it's our top 10 shows. But five for Isa, five for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I guess in the parlance of uh, American sports, uh, what is your what are your draft picks? What is your number Ooh, five? Okay, so for my number five, I've got Hex. I was specifically talking about season two. Uh, yeah, yep. For that, I think the the tone shakeup between season one mm. and season two, amazing, love it. Yep. Right, like the additional like uh, personal drama between our two leads. Uh, in season two itself, which we've already kind of like talked about at length, mm. right? Uh, has been the highlight of the show, right? Also extremely bold, but extremely kind of natural to flow from everything that's happened in season one into this, I don't know if it's blessed or cursed necessarily partnership <clears throat> between them, uh, has yep. been, you know, really, really interesting and so much more tension, so much more drama, but at the same time still being incredibly laugh out loud in, in, in parts. Uh, it mm. makes it for extremely kind of potent combination that continues to be compelling in season two. So that rounds out my picks for top, uh, not rounds out, but starts off my my picks for my top five within our top ten. Yeah, um, Isa's top five again. Sorry to tell you, it's also on HBO. Uh, <laughs> HBO is just fucking killing it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, see, seeing Deborah and Eva's dynamic on the road offers a more much more deliciously volatile environment for their various neuroses mm-hmm. and vices to erupt, you know. <laughs> in, in in season one, Deborah was always, <coughs> excuse me, was always more or less in safe, comfortable territory, yep. right? And out on the road, she is vulnerable. She's testing new material. She's bombing a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, Eva has her own vulnerabilities to contend with. She's grieving the loss of her father. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, she's still one misstep away from being completely broke. Yep. She's gotten on um, Deborah's bad side because <laughs> of uh, a terrible email that she sent at the end of season one. Yeah. You know, and and I think what makes season two crackle more is because both women are rawer than we've ever seen them before. Yeah. And that emotionally dangerous state makes the comedy all the more deserved and dangerous and satisfying. And especially after you laid all the groundwork in season one exactly. for them to become actual friends, yeah. you know, this setback in the relationship feels even more heartbreaking. So yeah, um, they definitely earned that. So good number five. My number five, sorry again to say, is also on HBO. <laughs> yes. Uh, season three of My Brilliant Friend continues uh, into the 1970s, of course. If you're already familiar with the, the show, or if you're unfamiliar, let me break it down. It is an adaptation of Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, which follows the lives of two impoverished young girls into adulthood 
into old age mm-hmm. across the years. Um, season three is set in the 1970s, uh, and it finds Elena, uh, our you know one of our two main characters, Elena, um, as a successful author. She's become a successful author. Meanwhile, her friend Leela uh, is now working in a meat factory uh, as a blue collar worker. Mm. Um, this is such a beautiful, sublime show, and it continues to be a uh, a real transportive experience. You really feel like you're in Naples. You really feel like you were on in the 50s in season one, in the 60s in season two, yeah. in the 70s in season three. Um, the series like Ferrante's books offer a vivid, close treatment of female friendship. The, the relationship between uh, between Leela and, and Lenu, uh, Lenu is short for Elena, mm-hmm. uh, remains cost, constant in its, I guess, inconsistency. Um it's the ups and downs of friendship. The, there's jealousy, there's curiosity alongside affection. And this season is the interactions between uh, Lenu and her uh, really take it up a notch. Um, I have to commend both actresses who are both 19, by the way, who played uh, 30, 30-ish year old women oh, yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very, very believable in that. You know? um, obviously, they were cast when they were 14 uh, to play you know, the kids and then they grew up along the show. But this is the first season where they had to play so vastly different uh, it's such a huge age gap, you know, upwise. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the final season next year I will actually recast them. I think it's the wise choice because I don't think they could. I mean, they're good actresses, but I don't think they can pull off people in their forties and fifties. <laughs> um, so I'm sad to see these two actresses go. But if you have one final hurrah with them, is really great. Yeah. Uh, my brilliant friend has for a long time been the most underrated show and my favorite show on HBO. Uh, I don't know whether I love it so much because it's underrated because no one else knows about it, but mm-hmm. I love championing this show. Yeah. Um, this is a television show that uh, weaves a spell unlike anything I've ever seen in a long time. Um, it demands concentration but rewards it generously. It's such a good character-driven show. Mm-hmm. It is all, it's very similar to Pachinko. If you've seen Pachinko, you you appreciate this yeah. you know, in terms of you know mm-hmm. the, the multi-generational saga-ness of it all. And that is my number five. What is your number four? My number four is Atlanta, season three. Yeah, uh, yeah. you've heard uh, Hadi and, and Hits and myself like rave about Atlanta multiple occasions, mm. right? And we'll, uh, it has gone, again, from kind of like strength to strength. Uh, I, I think like Atlanta's ability to always keep things fresh and mix things up has been its strongest um, selling point. Uh, with with the introduction from season two onwards, and season three is no different. Being able to kind of like catch up with our favorite characters and have episodes that have entirely nothing to do with them, but just adds to this fantastical urban uh, urban magical realism of a world yep. that they have yep. created has been so fun and so bizarre and so absurd, but at the same time extremely compelling to kind of like sit down and watch everything at one go. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, this is the last season, yes? Uh, uh, no. no. Um, season 4 and 5 have been greenlit as well. Yeah, so uh, where we are right now and just like kind of the shift in focus from the usual gang uh, to kind of like the side characters or even kind of new characters that have been, been introduced in, in uh, late season 2 or in late season 3. Uh, mm-hmm. more importantly like the focus on Vanessa in the run up to the last couple of episodes has been refreshing absolutely mm. um, like being able to kind of like fill out those corners of this world and the characters that haven't got as much kind of like screen time or kind of much backstory uh, and seeing just kind of uh, earn and you know 
Paperboy just kind of like stumble their way through this whole, you know, music thing is is a joy to watch and incredibly funny while being like some of the most solid and inventive kind of storytelling that we're getting in, in this kind of series so far. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, great pick for number four. I know a lot of people did not enjoy the anthologiness of uh of season three, especially because of the four year gap between seasons mm-hmm, two and three. Mm-hmm. They wanted to spend more time with Ern and Paperboy and Lakeith Stanfield and Vanessa and all that, you know. But I do appreciate the big swings that Donald Glover always thinks. Yeah. He is so um ambitious um in what he wants to say and also you know, it's not as if the anthology stories are not great short stories on their own. They're fantastic. They could be watched in a vacuum and mm-hmm. still blow you away. Um, yeah, I really, really loved uh, Atlanta Season 3 as well. Uh, for my number four, I'm picking a show that I've already, already talked about in genre equality. It is called yeah. Undone. Yeah. Um, Undone by um, Raphael Bob Waxburg, who obviously did uh, Bojack Horseman, mm-hmm. continues his incredible hot streak. This is another 10 out of 10 yep. for one of the best animation storytellers working today. Um, season 2 continues to approach the concept of trauma as an inherited trait with care and precision. On a technical level, the show is an absolute marvel. Its rotoscoping is unlike any other rotoscope film or TV show you've ever seen mm-hmm. before. You know, and like Fleabag season one, just when it felt like Undone could not top its first season, the second finds it firing on all cylinders, perhaps even improving upon the greatness of season one. Yeah. It is a, a tragic and poignant story of how to live with past guilt, pains, and scars from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. It is a hallucinogenic family dramedy that's made to be seen and experienced, and I enjoyed every little bit of it. And that's my number four. Uh, what is your number three? Oh, my number three, again, we've raved and ranted about Better Call Saul. Uh, mm. But we are halfway through the final season, uh, season yeah. six uh, so far. And I think, honestly, for me, past season four, it was already on my mind that Better Call Saul has surpassed Breaking Bad in terms of its yep. quality as a story and as, as a franchise, right? Yep. Uh, I think like now that we're in the final season, having seen the first half of it and in wrapping up all of that, I don't know, magic, mess, chaos, plans, schemes, all of that kind of like rolled into one and like just kind of waiting to be resolved. Uh, mm. Better Call Saul has certainly kind of hit its stride. Like something that I, in season one, dismissed as just kind of like a spin-off has become perhaps even more compelling than the franchise that spinned it off for entirely yeah. different reasons, right? It's an entirely different kind of show while set in the same world with familiar characters. Uh, these characters have gone about it in their own way um, and and uh, with their own story and it has been consistently good and has delivered every season so far and season six, well, the first half of it at least, uh, has delivered even more of that. So that is my number three pick. Yeah, um, and Better Call Saul might even jump to number one because we haven't seen a full season yet. Exactly. They, are, they are on a mid-season break at the moment. Yeah. Um, and Better Call Saul is firing on all cylinders. It is consistently one of the best shows. Mm-hmm. It will always be in, in the top five for whatever year it's there. Yep. You know? um, but I think overall, but, um, my, uh, Better Call Saul might actually be b- better. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, sorry to keep using the word better than any of the other shows that we've talked about. Just because of sheer consistency. Yep, absolutely. You know? um, in its character work, in Rhea Sion continuing to be like the MVP for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Jimmy is great. Um, glad to see Bob Wodenkirk has recovered from his heart attack to finish the show. 
Um, everything about the story from even a side character that we were not <laughs> supposed to like in the beginning, like like Howard Hamlin. Yeah. Um, Howard Hamlin and Nacho, yeah. uh, especially were the were the kind of two two biggest plot points of this uh the first half of the final season. Mm-hmm. And who would have expected that in season one? Yeah. That these two side characters that are barely related to Jimmy or Mike or Kim, yeah, uh, would become such um such fan favorites. You know? So, uh, kudos uh to Nacho and Howard. Um. I almost said something else that would have spoiled your fates, but I'm not going to say that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Better Call Saul, I definitely agree with you. Uh, what, what what number are we on right now? Uh, um, you're, you're on number three. You're on number three. I'm on my number three. Yeah. Okay, so that was your number three. My number three is a show called Severance. Mm. Um, if you want to listen to 10 out of 10 praise for Severance, <laughs> um, I already talked about it on Journal Equality 53. Um, but if you don't know, here's the, a small little synopsis. It is on Apple TV+. It's a thriller where Adam Scott plays Mark, mm. a man who literally has no life outside of work. Um, the show takes place in a world where corporate employees can volunteer for what is called a severance procedure that completely separates their memories of their time in the office from their memories of everything else. Mm-hmm. So... Office memories, personal memories, separated in your brain. So essentially, there are two different marks. One is the innie who exists in and around the, the office, the sub-basement cubicle where he does some sort of inscrutable data entry. And then there's the outie who has no clue what his body does down there for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, as created by Dan Erickson and Ben Stiller, the show literalizes the struggle for work-life balance in a way that feels equal parts Charlie Kaufman-esque sci-fi whimsy, paranoid 70s thriller, and late-stage capitalism satire. Um, and it's one of the most uh, thrilling, exciting <laughs> shows that you ever see. Its finale is hands down one of the best finales I've ever seen. You will be breathless for a good 45 minutes yep. in that final episode. It has one of the most like oh, infuriating cliffhangers <laughs> that you will you also um, ever see. So yeah, do check out Severance Season 1. Honestly, my top three picks here right here, like depending on the day, you ask me on a different day, I will pick any one of these three as my number one. Mm, so mm. yeah, uh, that was my number three, Severance. You haven't caught Severance yet, right? I have not caught Severance yet. I, I have not caught... Any of your top three, I believe, yet. Uh, just because, okay, yeah. Okay. So, uh, for yeah, moving on to my top two, uh, we've already talked about this on John, uh, on Behold specifically. Mm, I can't remember yeah. which specific episode, but we'll probably link that somewhere below. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. So, uh, my second pick is Better Things, who has just wrapped yeah. up uh, all of their seasons, I believe. Yes. Yeah, we're completely mm-hmm. done with that. Uh, yeah, better things continues to kind of like work on, uh, work on its fantastic kind of like cast of characters and like the individual stories that form their lives as you know, uh, these, um, well, I guess at this point these four women, um, yeah, 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 at this point these four women as they go about like dealing with their family, um, family drama and conflicts and they're kind of like their own personal growth and um, just kind of the obstacles in their way from trying to realize who they are as people, you know, and they're redefining their relationships uh, with their mother in particular or, you know, with the greater world around them or even like kind of the shared bonds of sisterhood um, and, and you know, uh, all the strange things that happens in, in their house. Uh, mm. It has been 
quite a journey. Better Things has been one of the most difficult uh, franchises to 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 accurately qualify as to why it's so good, or at least I have struggled that when uh, struggled with that when recommending Better Things to somebody else, right? Because mm. it's not exactly a family drama. It's not exactly you know, uh, it doesn't fit neatly into any sort of categorization, uh, but mm-hmm. it's entirely kind of naturalistic, episodic formula that they've adopted over the last four seasons has been so enjoyable and so compelling. Uh, just yep. like from season one, I've been so invested. And now that we're four seasons in, everything kind of wrapped it up. One of the most consistent series that we've had uh, the pleasure of watching and reviewing on our show. Um, mm. Yeah, and I think like just from the sheer strength of that, being able to deliver episode after episode, season after season, with great storytelling and great performances, and just a, a very sweet, very natural, very believable story about a family just trying to, you know, be just that, to be a family. Uh, it yep. has been uh, one of the most enjoyable things that I have seen. Uh, yep. Every year that it has come out, and in particular this year as it wraps up. Mm. Um, definitely have to agree with this pick, man. Um, it's it's right up there for me as well. Um, that ineffable quality that you're talking mm. about, the the inability to summarize it, yeah, uh, is what makes this better than every other American TV show. Even the excellent one, yeah. it makes them seem formulaic and timid yeah. in comparison. There's very loosely formed, plotless, character driven. <laughs> vignettes you know and it's filled with believably awkward and volatile and humane moments among uh, Pamela Atlon's uh, Sam Fox is the character and yeah. her daughters um, as well as her friends and colleagues and exes you know it's a it's a show about mothers and daughters essentially like that's that's why I put it as it's yeah. about the sisterhood of all women particularly the mothers and daughters of one of of one kind or another, mm-hmm. um, and it has this variance of the observations that all mothers are single mothers, and it keeps recurring. And better things is is able to find beauty in the meaning, uh, and beauty and meaning in parts of life that so many screenwriting manuals insist that insist that they are inherently dull or should be avoided in favor of action or conflict or jeopardy. Yeah, that's the sneaky power of the series. It lies in Atlon's determination to do what she's been told not to do and to point the cameras at the parts of the world that commercial television mm-hmm. rarely notices. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, great pick for your number two, man. Uh, my number two is a show that has really elevated itself this season. Um, it is the third season of HBO's Barry, created by and starring Bill Hader. Mm. Um, it's Barry is just on another level this season. Like every <laughs> single episode, I keep thinking this is the best directed episode I've ever seen. Yep. Uh, Bill Hader has really upped its chops um, in terms of uh, comedy, in terms of especially in terms of action this mm-hmm. year. Just the way he frames things is so unique. He does, he points to the cameras in ways that I never have seen any other filmmaker do. Mm. He finds such unique way to convey uh, metaphor and convey literal things. Um, one particular chase scene in episode 5 is probably the most unique chase scene you've ever seen in a history of film content. Um, Barry also remains very, very funny. But this year, more than any other year, season 3 of Barry, it becomes some of the darkest shit you've ever seen. Mm. This is 
um, season five Breaking Bad level Oof. of darkness, you know, yeah. that, that Barry delves into. <laughs> it is very unapologetic and is very un, unfiltered in its determination to make you, the audience, realize who after, you know, three years, you were so sympathetic to Barry. Mm-hmm. They want you to understand that Barry is not a good person in the same way that season five basically, you know, you know all those people <laughs> who who kept rooting for Walter White and yeah. they're like, look, look at what he's doing, you know. Yeah. That that is what Barry keeps doing here. Oh, while okay. being absolutely hilarious. Like you can be hating on Barry, but still be laughing in the situation that he finds himself in. Mm-hmm. That's the genius of Barry, and Barry Kiss keeps Every season is better than the previous season. That's that's the best way I can put it. And and very few shows have this type of like incline. Um, yeah, uh, incredible. Um, I highly recommend the third season on Barry, especially episode five, guys. One of the best episodes of the year. Um, that was my number two pick. Uh, what is your number one pick, Isa? Yes, my number one pick. Uh, we've just talked about it. Uh, yeah. And you know, usually I would I would be kind of be against like trying to <clears throat> overlap with stuff that we're <clears throat> discussing in the actual episode itself. Uh, and yep. I don't know because of his recency bias or what, but Pachinko is my number one pick so far. I think like mm. it's been it's been a special experience like watching through the entire thing. I think given enough time, it would rank about the same as Better Things, right? But and Better Things has has the 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 advantage of having four amazing seasons behind it. You know, mm. uh, but Pachinko has felt great and fresh, right? Despite our you know little nitpicks about it so far, it is certainly the one that I've personally enjoyed the most this year. Uh, and again, yep. you know, recency bias, uh, but easily, easily one of my favorite for sure. I am bet yeah. I I'm I like you am betting that you know, Better Call Saw will probably be at the top at the end of the year, but we'll see how it goes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but the Coso still has time to fuck up, although it wouldn't. Like, yeah. Look at the chart. But <laughs> You know that, that that's the thing that I've I've talked about several times. Like I'm I'm reluctant to put Better Call Saul above Breaking Bad because I haven't seen how Better Call Saul ends. Yes. Like I don't know, you know. So yeah. for now, Breaking Bad, just by virtue of delivering everything from beginning to end almost perfectly, is still at the top. Lah. But Better yeah. Call Saul can top it oh, if yeah. it just doesn't fumble at the finish line. Yeah. You know? Um yeah, I mean we already talked about Pachinko, loved it as well. Uh, my number one for the year is really also my number one of 2021. Uh, this is a show that straddles. Uh, half the show was in December of December of 2021. Yeah. Half the other half of the show was in January of 2022. This is HBO again. Sorry, uh, HBO Max's Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, and its timing is unfortunate or spectacular, depending on how you, you look at it. <laughs> um, the ten part adaptation of Emily Son- Emily Saint John Mandel's acclaimed novel is about the aftermath of a flu pandemic that wipes out 90% of the world. Mm. Um, and it arrives at a time when, hey, uh, we were still fretting about COVID. Yeah. Um, but the majority of the limited series, as adapted by the leftovers' uh, Patrick Summerfield and directed by Atlanta and Barry's uh, Hiro Murai, uh, actually takes place 20 years in the future, post-pandemic, when uh, we follow a character called Christine, played by Mackenzie Davis, as she tours the American Midwest with a company of actors and musicians called the Traveling Symphony, who performs Shakespeare plays for survivors eager to experience any bit of culture from the world they once knew. Um, and the exploration of what art can and cannot heal, mm-hmm. as well as what pieces of society could and should potentially survive such an apocalypse feels even more relevant and powerful now mm-hmm. than even when the book was published in 
2014. It has this marvelous blend of despair and whimsy. Um, the show is non-linear like Pachinko, but its reliance on flashbacks and other non-linear storytelling is, I think, in my opinion, by far the smartest and most effective use of that device TV has seen in quite a while. Yeah. Um, Station Eleven features some of the year's most tear-inducing moments, but also a healthy mix of quirky comedy and riveting oddness. Um, and despite the seemingly bleak subject matter and the action and the suspense and Christine trying to protect her friends from cults and stuff like that. Station Eleven is surprisingly goofy and comedic <laughs> and light on its feet, you know. Yeah. There are moments that are just so special. There is a random impromptu uh, rap cover of a tribe called Quest breaking out to liven a tense moment. There are magical sequences of pregnant ladies raving to TLC's creep in a department store. Um, <laughs> there is even a moving rendition of Hamlet in the, season, in the series finale that heals old wounds in the final episode. This is the rare post-apocalyptic dystopia that emphasizes hope, not cynicism. It argues that the world is, for the most part, a better place mm -hmm. once the old systems are gone and people can begin at anew. It also argues that art and stories are what can help us understand each other and communicate things too painful to say out loud. You know? yeah. Art and stories are what gets us through the dark times and the tragedies. Um, and that's kind of been... That's what we're trying to emphasize here mm -hmm. also you know, mm -hmm. in our podcast. You know, art and stories are the things that can get you through things. That's what Station Eleven is about. That's why it's my number one for two straight years. Uh, <laughs> In 2021 yeah. and 2022. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Like, not, not the end of the year yet. Yes. But I, I still find it hard to beat Station Eleven, man. Station Eleven is such a such a, a perfect miniseries. Yeah. You know? um, and it doesn't have the... I mean, admittedly, I don't know how it would have gone in season 2 or 3 or 1. But, you know, it's just like a perfect short little story that was told perfectly from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why it's my number one for the year. Okay. That being said, though, yes. right, uh, for the media, my actual number one is actually um, ha um, ISIS number two. Yeah, uh, my yeah. actual number one is Better Things, mm -hmm. right? And I find it hard to disagree with any of his top fives. Any of his top five, if you ask me on a random day, <laughs> yeah. they, could, they, will, they will probably make my top five as well. So our top ten are pretty much interchangeable, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, I think they are all ten out of ten shows that, depending on your mood, the rankings will change. But just so happens today, this is our mood and these are our rankings. Yeah. Uh, but all, all 10 shows, including the four that we've already talked about before, are highly recommended. Go check them out. A lot of FX, a lot of HBO, and a lot of Apple TV+. Plus. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so much to watch. If you haven't caught up, you know, spend your summer watching some of these shows. Yeah. And, you know, there are already shows from June and July that I already want to talk about, but hey, we spent too much time on this. I'll save <laughs> that for another podcast, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, any other, like, honorable mentions or shout-outs before oh, we cap this episode off? Uh, okay, just a thought, right? Uh, we're we're yep. going on to, like, almost five years of doing this. And I think mm. this year is the most stacked we have ever seen TV. The number mm. of 10 upon 10s, 9 upon 10s, 8.5 out of 10s that we have watched and reviewed and talked about and gone in-depth with this year alone is, in my memory, more than any other year that we've done this. Uh, am I mm -hmm. right to say that? So, I mean, yep. we're kind of in a heyday right now of, like, TV storytelling, uh, you know, mm. and sort of like, I don't know if we'll call it renaissance necessarily, but certainly another golden age. Uh, and it's been such a ride. It's kind of hard, mm. uh, you know. I I don't know how you're gonna deal with like picking all your top fifty at the end of the year. To be very honest, 
Yeah, um, I mean, this year, weirdly enough, the reason we have gotten so many great shows um, compacted into such a short period is because of COVID. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of these 10 or 10 seasons that we're talking about should have been released in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. Um, and they all just came together right here, right now, in the first six months of 2022. They're just being popped out there, you know, due to uh, production delays and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and that's in addition to the shows that debuted during the COVID era. Shows like Hex, you know. Yeah. Um, shows like uh, like that. They are also coming back now. So we have more additions to this great um, filmography or TVography or whatever you want to talk about. This, this golden era is as stacked as it gets. Mm-hmm. When, when I can't find a spot for a show like Hex on my top 10, that shows you how great. um, (laughs) Only Murders in a Building, a show that I fucking really, really love. I can't find a spot for it in my top 10. Yeah. I mean, that shows how good the the year is, you know. Um, And we'll have more to talk to you about. Uh, I'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks to talk about the Paddington franchise Mm -hmm. with uh, Hardy. And we'll be back at the end of the month to talk about uh, genre stuff. Thor, Love, and Thunder we'll be watching soon. Miss Marvel is... uh, you know, two more episodes to the finale. Um, I think the boys have had a spectacular season. Look, the boys could easily fit in my top 10. I just can't find a place for it. In any other year, the boys would have been a top three show. Mm-hmm. Like this particular season of the boys. Mm-hmm. So, so to the Orville, which again is having a killer season. Um, again, it, it points back to like how stacked the year is when stuff like Orville and the boys and Ms. Marvel can't find a place in my top 10. Yeah. Good. Good lord, you know. But we'll talk about them anyway. We'll praise them with uh, John Wick Forty Fifty Six. Anything in particular that you're looking forward to talking about? Oh man, I'm super excited to go catch Thor: Love and Thunder, which is just coming out in Singapore for sure. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really want to talk about uh, Miss Marvel, and like uh, this is this is probably going to be like one of the first few. Well, we did have it in in Hawkeye as well, uh, but mm. you know the new generations that are kind of like they're grooming. Uh, for for taking place, you know, a lot of the uh, Avengers and Marvel stars are getting older and running out the end of their contract. They're introducing the new generation as they've done with the comics in recent times. I'm super yep. interested in like how they are doing it and where they're going to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I'll be talking about David Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future. Uh, I'll be talking about the final season of Wellington Paranormal. <laughs> I'll be talking about uh, The Witch 2, uh, the sequel to The Witch, not the Robert Eggers one, but the Korean superhero one from 2018. Yeah. Uh, the new season of Solar Opposites. Um, I even saw Minions, The Rise of Gru, so I'll let you uh, know how that goes. <laughs> Did you wear a um, the oh, opening? Uh, no, I did not. It was a, a very prim and proper critics opening <laughs> where everybody groaned and everything. Um, and unfortunately, I'm assigning Isa uh, the live action Netflix <sighs> Resident Evil show, which I've, I don't know. I don't want to prejudge that. Yeah, but, we'll see. but live action Resident <laughs> Evils have not gone great, <laughs> no, shall we say. No, no. I, I, will, I will struggle through as much of it as I can and I will give you a report about it. So either because you want to or you don't have to. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and until uh, next time, this has been Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.